We're going to talk about something that Bill alluded to, and that is the solas, S-O-L-A apostrophe S, the solas of the Reformation. One person wrote, where the, uh, page 175, where the Roman Catholic Church taught Scripture plus church tradition, the Reformers believe in Scripture alone, sola scriptura in Latin. Where Rome taught faith plus works, the Reformers believed in faith alone, sola fide. Where Rome taught grace plus merit, the Reformers believe in grace alone, sola gratia. Where Rome taught Christ, Mary, and the church identified saints, the Reformers believed in Christ alone, solo Christo. And where Rome taught God, church identified saints, and church hierarchy, the Reformers believed in glory to God alone, soli Deo Gloria. In other words, during the Reformation, one of the ways the, the church was uh, spread was through sound bites. Now, you know what a sound bite is. Uh, if you're going to be interviewed, if you want news people, if you're some political personage, and you want to be uh, interviewed by news people, you don't have long, drawn-out sentences like I would have, so they don't, wouldn't interview me. But you want to have short, sharp, concise, catchy, memorable statements. And they'll come back to you every time. And I I think the expert today is Newt Gingrich. Nobody does sound bites better than Newt Gingrich. Well, the the reformers had these sound bites that represented the basic truths of the Reformation, particularly where they disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, some people say that what we're doing, we meaning modern Calvinists, are reading back into the picture these solas, these sound bites that weren't really sound bites. We're just creating them. So what I'm going to do is tell you what these Latin sound bites were, and then I'm going to quote Calvin for each one of those, and you'll see that this isn't something we're imposing upon the Reformation. These were the fundamental issues of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century and beyond in their disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church. We can say it this way, only Scripture, only grace, only Christ, only faith, to God be the glory. So let's first of all talk about what Bill talked about a while ago with the Waldensians, sola scriptura, Latin for by Scripture alone. One of the central issues of the Protestant Reformation was authority. And this soundbite was used by the Reformers to distance themselves from Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism uh, believes the Word of God is Scripture and unwritten tradition of the church and the proper use of reason. Whereas the Reformers, on the other hand, said, no, the Word of God is contained in Holy Scripture and that we know God by Scripture alone, sola scriptura. Here's the way Calvin put it. Accordingly, our opponents, as if having victory at hand, decide that without faith we are indeed not justified, but that we are also not justified by it alone, that it is works that complete our righteousness. Here I beseech the godly, if they know the true rule of righteousness 
is sought from Scripture alone, religiously and earnestly to ponder with me how Scripture may, without quibbing, be duly brought into agreement with itself. In 1521, at the historic Diet of Worms, Worms, where Luther was on trial for his Protestant doctrines and was urged to recant, he made this courageous and unforgettable declaration. Unless I am overcome with testimonies from Scripture or with evident reasons, for I believe neither the Pope nor the councils, since they have often erred and contradicted one another, I am overcome by the Scripture texts which I have adduced, and my conscience is bound by God's Word. Here stay ich, ich kann nicht anders, Gott helf mir, Amen. Here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, Amen. This basic Protestant and Reformed principle is maturely confessed in the Westminster Confession of Faith that was born out of English Puritanism in the 1600s. I would encourage you to look at the first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Michael Horton, whom I don't always agree with, has made three wise comments about the sola scriptura principle. He said, many critics of the Reformation have attempted to portray it as the invitation to individualism, as people discover for themselves from the Bible what they will and will not believe. Never mind the church, away with creeds and the church's teaching office. We have the Bible and that's enough. But this was not the Reformer's doctrine of sola scriptura, only scripture. Luther said of individualistic approaches to the Bible, that would mean that each man would go to hell in his own way. Now that's important because you have particularly among uh, conservative Christians and homeschool groups, and I'm for homeschools, you have this un understanding that sola scriptura means all I need to live the Christian life is my family, my gun, and my Bible. And the Holy Spirit. Don't need the church. Particularly don't need the institutional church. I don't need preachers. I don't need books. That's all I need. That is not what the Protestant Reformation meant by sola scriptura. Let's go on. On one side, the reformers faced the Roman church, which believed its teaching authority to be final and absolute. The Roman Catholic said that tradition can be a form of infallible revelation even in the contemporary church. One needs an infallible Bible and an infallible interpreter of that sacred book. On the other, which is the Pope or the church. On the other hand were the Anabaptist radicals who believed that they not only did not need the teaching office of the church, they really didn't seem to need the Bible either since the Holy Spirit spoke to them or at least to their leaders directly. Instead of one pope, Anabaptism produced numerous infallible messengers who heard the voice of God. Against both positions, the Reformation insisted that the Bible was the sole final authority in determining doctrine and life. In interpreting it, the whole church must be included, including the laity, and they must be guided by the teachers in the church. Those teachers, though not infallible, should have considerate interpretive authority, the creeds were binding and the newly reformed Protestant communions quickly drafted confessions of faith that received the assent of the whole church, not merely the teachers. Today, we're faced with similar challenges, even within evangelicalism. On one hand, there is the tendency to say, as Luther characterized the problem, I go to church, hear what the priest says, and him I believe. Calvin complained to Cardinal Sadolet that the sermons before the Reformation were part trivial pursuit, 
part storytelling. Today, this same process of dumbing down has meant that we are, in George Gallup's words, a nation of biblical illiterates. Perhaps we have a high view of the Bible inspiration. Eighty percent of adult Americans believe that the Bible is the literal or inspired word of God. But 30% of the teenagers who attend church regularly do not even know why Easter is celebrated. Well, by what I mean by that is the resurrection. Gallup says the decline in Bible reading is due in part to the widely held conviction that the Bible is inaccessible and to less emphasis on religious training in churches. Just as Rome's infallibility rested on the belief that the Bible itself was difficult, obscure, and confusing... So today, people want the net breakdown from the professionals. What does it mean for me, and how will it help me and make me happy? But those who read the Bible for more than devotional meditations know how clear it is, at least on the main points it addresses, and how it ends up making religion less confusing and obscure. Again today, the Bible, especially in mainline Protestant churches, is a mysterious book that could only be understood by a small cadre of biblical scholars Who are in the know. But we have the other side too. There is a popular trend in many evangelical churches to emphasize direct communication with the Holy Spirit apart from the Word. In these circles, tradition and the teaching ministry of the church through the ages are not only treated as as fallible as the Reformers believe, but as objects of mockery. The sentiments of Thomas Munster, who complained that Luther was one of our scribes who wants to send the Holy Ghost off to college would find a prime time spot on the nation's leading evangelical radio and television broadcasts. Calvin said of these folks, when the fanatics boast extravagantly of the Spirit, the tendency is always to bury the Word of God so they may make room for their own falsehoods. Further, sola scriptura meant that the Word of God was sufficient. Although Rome believed it was infallible, the official theology was shaped more by the insights of Plato and Aristotle than by Scripture. Similarly, today, psychology threatens to reshape the understanding of self. As even in the evangelical pulpit, sin becomes addiction. The fall as an event is replaced with one's victim status. Salvation is increasingly communicated as mental health, peace of mind, and self-esteem, and my personal happiness and self-fulfillment are center stage, rather than God's holiness and mercy, justice and love, glory and compassion. Does the Bible define the human problem and its solution? Or when we really want facts, do we turn somewhere else to a modern secular authority who will really carry weight in my sermon? Of course, the Bible will be cited to bolster the argument. Political ideology, sociology, marketing, and other secular authorities must never be allowed priority in answering questions the Bible addresses. That is, in part, what this affirmation means. And evangelicals today seem as confused on that point as was the medieval church. And so we must emphasize today just as strongly as they did in the Reformation, sola scriptura. There's as much confusion from every side about status and authority as the scripture today as there was in the Middle Ages. And today, more than ever, we need to tell people particularly Christian people, what sola scriptura means over against all these other views. And then the second soundbite is sola gratia, by grace alone. Calvin, 
Perseverance would, without any doubt, be accounted God's free gift if a most wicked error did not prevail that it is distributed according to man's merit, insofar as each man shows himself receptive to the first grace. But since this error arose from the fact that men thought it in their power to spurn or to accept the proffered grace of God, when the latter opinion is swept away, the former idea also falls of itself. However, there is here a twofold error. For besides teaching that our gratefulness for the first grace and our lawful use of it are rewarded by subsequent gifts, they add also that grace does not work in us by itself, but is only a co-worker with us. Calvin criticizes Osiander's view of salvation by pointing out that Osiander teaches that, quote, we are not justified by the grace of the mediator alone. Nor is righteousness simply or completely offered to us in his person. After pointing out that Romans 11.35 teaches us that we are not to suppose that we bring anything to the Lord but the sheer disgrace of need and emptiness, Calvin explains, Therefore, in the passage cited above, to prove that we have attained the hope of salvation by his grace alone, not by works, he states that we are his creatures, since we have been reborn in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is as if he said, said Calvin, who of us can boast that he has appealed to God by his own righteousness when our first capacity for well-doing flows from regeneration? Or this quote from Calvin. If the same sermon is preached, say to a hundred people, 20 receive it with the ready obedience of faith while the rest hold it valueless or laugh or hiss or loathe it. Therefore, we shall always be confused unless Paul's question comes to mind. Who distinguishes you? By this, he means that some excel others, not by their own virtue, but by God's grace alone. Sola gratia. Contrary to Julie Andrews' character of Maria in The Sound of Music, who was overwhelmed with Captain Von Trapp's attraction to her, saying, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. We children of the Protestant Reformation know that salvation from sin, death, and hell is by the sheer, undeserved, unmerited, unbought, sovereign grace of the triune God. Christianity does not offer the world a Savior who saves people who deserve to be saved or who take the first step toward God, nor does it offer the world a Savior who helps people save themselves. Rather, it offers the world a Savior who saves people who do not deserve to be saved, dead in their sin, so they can on their own take no steps toward God, people who cannot save themselves because the mind of the unregenerate is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it does not, uh, for it's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Go to the bottom of page 181. According to R.C. Sproul, Calvin and all the reformers agreed on one crucial point. The moral inability of fallen human beings to incline themselves to the things of God. That all people, in order to be saved, are totally dependent, not 99%, but 100% dependent upon the monogistic work of regeneration in order to come to faith in Christ. And that faith itself is a gift of God. 
It is not that we are offered salvation and that we will be born again if we choose to believe. But we cannot even believe until God in His grace and in His mercy first changes the disposition of our souls through His sovereign work of regeneration. In other words, what the Reformers all agreed with was, unless a man is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Next paragraph. Modern evangelicalism has, in some instances, consciously and in others unconsciously, turned its back on this heart doctrine of the Protestant Reformation, sola gratia. And therefore, it remains in captivity to semi-Pelagianism in new forms. And we'll talk about that after a while. According to a George Barna poll, 70% of evangelicals believe that man is basically good. Over 80% hold the view that God helps those who help themselves. These views are not only semi-Pelagian, they're Pelagian. Michael Horton has written, This belief in the goodness of human nature so prominent in the Enlightenment wrecked the evangelical doctrine of grace among the older evangelical Protestant denominations now called mainline. And we see where that has taken them. And yet conservative evangelicals are heading down the same path and have had this human-centered, work-centered emphasis for some time. The statistics bear us out, unfortunately. And again, the leaders help substantiate the error. Norman Geisler, no friend to the Reformed faith, writes, this is the leading evangelical, God would save all men if he could. He will save the greatest number actually achievable without violating their free will. Poor old God. Then the third soundbite is solo Christo by Christ alone. Here's Calvin. By fleeing to that righteousness which is founded solely upon God's mercy, he gloriously triumphs over both life and death, reproaches and hunger, the sword and all other adverse things. He clearly proclaims that he has a righteousness which alone entirely suffices for salvation before God. The medieval church saw herself as the distributor of saving grace through her priests and sacraments to all who had faith in her. Also, Renaissance thinkers saw all religions as equal ways to God and human reason as the source of truth. The Reformation declared war on both of these viewpoints in defense of the scriptural truth that there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How often, by the way, do people misquote that verse, including the great, beloved, incomparable Westminster Confession of Faith. Most people quote 1 Timothy 2.5, including the confession, as saying this, There is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But Paul tells Timothy, there's one mediator between God and men. Not all of mankind, but between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It preached that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Jesus Christ is the only way of knowing God and of entering into a saving relationship with Him. All other religions but the revealed religion of the Bible 
are false and cannot bring salvation. Today, 35% of evangelical seminaries deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary. Their faith is that God will save all good people when they die, whether they believe in Christ or not. Over 25% of evangelicals agreed with the following statement. If a person is good or does good, enough good things for others during life, he will earn a place in heaven. Two-thirds of evangelicals agreed with this statement. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and all others pray to the same God. Even though they use different names for God. Of course, both Bush and Obama believe that. This religious relativism and pluralism has not only infected the masses of evangelicals, it is self-consciously taught by some of evangelicalism's own teachers. Michael Horton quotes Clark Pinnock as saying, The Bible does not teach that one must confess the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. The issue God cares about is the direction of the heart, not the content of their theology. To say Christ only, solo Christo, is not to say that we do not place equal emphasis on God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We're not guilty of the heresy of subordinationism. We are simply insisting that Jesus Christ is the only incarnate revelation of God and the only Savior of the world. Roman Catholicism never considered the merit of Christ to be unnecessary for the believer's salvation. But what was crucial to the Protestant argument with Rome was the objective basis of justification. R.C. Sproul says, The issue was how the objective, redemptive work of Christ is subjectively appropriated by the sinner. The Reformers insisted that the imputation of the righteousness of Christ in his perfect life and atoning death is the only basis for our justification with God, hence solo Christo. The official stance of the Roman Catholic Church to this day on this issue is found in the canons of the Council of Trent, their official statement and infallible statement of, of doctrine. Canon 32 says, If anyone says that the good works of the one justified are in such manner the gifts of God that they are not only the good merits of him justified or that the one justified by the good works that he performs by the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ whose living memory is does not truly merit an increase of grace eternal life and in case he dies in grace the attainment of eternal life itself and also an increase of glory let him be anathema. You just got cursed to hell by the Roman Catholic Church. So then, scholasticism's view of justification by faith, which has become the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church according to the Council of Trent, is that grace plus merit of Christ plus good works by the believer plus meritorious behavior by the believer equals justification, increased grace, and eternal life. It is obvious that according to this view, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us is not sufficient to save us. Hence, the soundbite, solo Christo. Fourth soundbite, sola fide, by faith alone. Calvin used this phrase to refute the Roman Catholic belief that we're justified by faith in Christ and 
by meritorious works on our part. Martin Luther used it famously in his translation of Romans 3.28, adding the German word align, meaning alone, to the verse, but not adding to the idea presented by the verse, for we maintain that a, just, uh, that a man is justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. Here's Calvin. In explaining that repentance is the consequence of true saving faith, Calvin says this, For when this topic is rightly understood, it will better appear how man is justified by faith alone. Nevertheless, actual holiness of life, so to speak, is not separated from free imputation of righteousness. Nor now it ought to be a fact beyond controversy that repentance not only constantly follows faith, but is also born of faith. Calvin said this, Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace, namely, that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness, we may have in heaven instead of a judge, a gracious father. And secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness and purity of life. It was more to the point to understand first how little devoid of good works is faith through which alone we obtain righteousness. And so over and over, I give you quote after quote by Calvin. Page 187. Calvin and the reformers knew it was not adequate to say that we are saved by grace because even the medieval church could make that statement, although it left out and denied several basic elements of the gospel of salvation by grace. It is not by grace alone, nor by Christ alone, nor by faith alone, they claim. The stance of the Roman Catholic Church on the issue can be found in the canons of the Council of Trent, Canon 9. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and the other reformers believed that unregenerate man can do nothing to please God until he's regenerated by God's almighty, sovereign, prevenient, and irresistible grace. And while Pelagius believed that natural man possesses the power to produce faith and godliness in himself, the scholastics believed that man could believe with the help of God's grace, but that that grace was not effective, prevenient, sovereign, and irresistible. They said that the free will of man acts with the assistance of grace and cooperating with grace. This belief in the autonomy of man gave birth to the doctrine of justification by meritorious works that dominates Roman Catholicism to this very day. So hence we have the soundbite by faith alone. And fifth soundbite, soli Deo Gloria. Glory be to God alone. I pastored a church one time. I was the first Reformed pastor they'd ever had. And they'd been in existence for decades. And so I introduced them to the phrase soli Deo Gloria. And one of the officers and I said, does anybody know what this means? And one of the officers wanted to impress me with his knowledge of theology. And so he raised his hand and he said, yes, sir. Soli Deo Gloria means 
the sun always shines. <laughs> this has been called this has been called the most important sola. And yet Robert Schuller has actually criticized the Protestant Reformation because in his words, it was God-centered rather than man-centered. Although the Westminster Shorter Catechism testifies that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Michael Horton has written, Many historians look back to the Reformation and wonder at its far-reaching influences in transforming culture. The work ethic, public education, civic and economic betterment, a revival of music, the arts, and a sense of all life being related somehow to God and his glory, these effects cause historians to observe with a sense of irony how a theology of sin and grace, the sovereignty of God over the helplessness of human beings, and an emphasis on salvation by grace apart from works could be the catalyst for such energetic moral transformation. The Reformers did not set out to launch a political or moral campaign, but they proved that when we put the gospel first and give voice to the word, the effects inevitably follow. How can we expect the world to take God and his glory seriously if the church does not? The Reformation slogan, Soli Deo Gloria, was carved into the organ at Box Church in Leipzig, and the composer signed his works with its initials. It is inscribed over taverns and music halls in old sections of Heidelberg and Amsterdam a lasting tribute to a time when the fragrance of God's goodness seemed to fill the air. It was not a golden age, but it was an amazing recovery of God-centered faith and practice. Columbia University professor Eugene Rice offers a fitting conclusion. All the more, the Reformation's views of God and humanity measure the gulf between the secular imagination of the 20th century and the 16th century's intoxication with the majesty of God. We can exercise only historical sympathy to try to understand how it was that the most brilliant intelligences of an entire epoch found a total, a supreme liberty in abandoning human weakness to the omnipotence of God.